Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of John. The book of John, verses 1 through 5, will be our scripture reading. We return to this gospel, which we began coming on two years in this gospel. And uh, it's been a while since we've been in this book. We want to revisit and continue our study in the gospel of John. And our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 5. John Chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. The text of the Word of God reads such. Jesus spoke these things and Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again this morning. Our Father, we are so blessed by your word, which is eternal. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And we pray, O Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Well, before we begin this morning, I first of all want to thank the Lord for his grace in my life. I thank the Lord for the tumor that he gave to me. And I am grateful for the privilege of serving God, the privilege of serving you, the privilege of being a part of this wonderful growing church, the privilege of being here in this body. It is a unique uh, church that I think that God has brought us together, and it is my privilege, my joy, my real joy. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for all of you, for your prayers, your love, your concern, uh, the food that would feed 10 people at one meal. I'm <laughs> thankful for uh, your love for one another, not just myself, but many of you have picked up uh, the ball that was uh, laid aside for a while, and I want to express my gratefulness to you very, very deeply, am I thankful to the Lord. Never have I had such a break in my life for over 20 years, and the Lord perhaps knew that I needed one, and uh, I am grateful for that. Well, it's been over two months since I've been here in the pulpit to preach, and we return to the Gospel of John. 
And some of you have come, and some of you who are new here within those past two months, what I'd like to do, uh, especially since it's been a little bit of a respite, is to go and take a bird's-eye view of the Gospel of John, that we might catch up to where we are at in the book of John, in John chapter 17, that we might not lose sight of the forest as we look at the trees, that we might understand where we have been so that we know where we are and where we will be going in this Gospel The purpose of this gospel is laid out clearly for us in John chapter 20, verse 31, just a couple of chapters over. In John chapter 20, verse 31, the purpose is written and stated very clearly when the Apostle John writes, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Christian pamphlets, outreach materials, follow-up materials for Christians or those who want to know more about Christianity, you'll often find a copy of the Gospel of John. For someone who asks me where they should start reading in the Bible, I'll either point them to the Gospel of John or the book of Genesis to begin reading. It is so very helpful understand the scriptures, because John's purpose here is to present who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is our Savior, that he is God himself, and that the reader might have life, have life, eternal life. So the aim of John in writing this gospel is to present Jesus as God, as the Savior, that we might have eternal life. And he does this by presenting to us the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, the deeds that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said. And in particular, in this gospel, the writer, John, points out seven signs, seven particular miraculous signs that John highlights in the life of Christ. Christ first began his first sign by turning water to wine in John chapter 2. Then he healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. And then he healed the layman in John chapter 5. He fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And also in that chapter, he walked on water. He cured the man born blind from birth. In John chapter 9, then the seventh sign was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, after being dead for four days. And we noted as we continued our study that never did the religious leaders, the Jews, dispute the reality of his miracles. They never disputed the reality of his miracles. They didn't say, oh, no, 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 that man wasn't blind. Oh, no, 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 Lazarus really wasn't dead. Why? Because the miracles were so clear-cut. The evidence was so overwhelming. The ample witnesses to corroborate the events were indisputable. And the miracles themselves were never questioned. But even in the face of all of that evidence, and we know that John writes even to us saying that he did much more than that, 
Even in the face of all of that evidence, the Jews would not believe. They would not believe, even though all of these things were performed for them. In John chapter 10, verse 24, John tells us that the Jews gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, that was after he had done six of those key signs. Verse 25 and. John chapter 10, Jesus answered them and he said, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The miracles, the signs were a testimony of who Christ was. It wasn't a showboat. It wasn't to gain popularity. It was to testify of who Jesus was, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. But even in the face of all of that evidence, the Jews still would not believe. The responsibility to believe is placed squarely on their shoulders. In John chapter 12, verse 37, it says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They were not believing in him. These were miraculous works, yet they did not believe. And the responsibility was placed directly on their shoulders. I realize as we go through the book of John and we see these miracles for some of you, it's perhaps nothing special because I realize that in our culture today, we fight somewhat of an uphill battle. We fight somewhat of an uphill battle where when you are reading, for some of you, about someone being raised from the dead or somebody having sight after they've been blind, it is nothing spectacular, doesn't seem to impact you perhaps, because perhaps in your mind's eye it is thoroughly mixed in our culture, the reality and fantasy that is often promoted In our media-saturated culture, we are often, often exposed to everything, from aliens to transformers to superheroes, X-Men and orcs and werewolves and zombies and whatever else you might find. So something like this may not be as impressive in your mind's eye because even the strangest ideas are that may be unreal, are presented. And so we realize that that often is part of our culture, but realize, too, that Jesus never used, who was a master of illustrating things, always used reality. He didn't use fantasy. Even the parables that Jesus would tell, he would tell, even though they were fictional stories, were all cast in the context of people in life situations, using what was true, not some green alien or a yellow tic-tac with eyeballs and trousers. That is to say, though, that it is important for us to understand and discern and understand how our world impacts how we read the scriptures and what God desires to convey to us in a convincing and overwhelming manner, the evidence that is portrayed before us, the testimony of Christ through his works through his miracles, the things that he did, and to believe. And as I mentioned, Jesus' 
works validated who he was as well as his message because he was a master of using metaphors and illustrating who he was and what he was trying to convey. In the book of John, just as there were seven specific signs that John presented, there were seven specific metaphors that Jesus used, seven I am statements. John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. In that same chapter, he said, I am the good shepherd. And then in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in 15, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Some might add an eighth when he said before, Abraham was, I am, in John eight fifty eight. But as I mentioned, he masterfully, here in this gospel, as we've gone along and seen, he masterfully paints a picture of who he is, often using contexts of what he had just done. You recall when we were in John chapter 6, I'm sure you remember, and if you haven't, you've heard as a child the account of the feeding of 5,000. The miraculous feeding of 5,000 from a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish, and there were 5,000 men. And if you include all the women and children, likely it was fifteen to 20,000 individuals. And after Jesus fed all of them that night, the sign of him walking on the water to the other side and leaving all of these thousands of people wondering where he went. And they followed him, some in boats, maybe some walking around. They all wanted food. And what did he say to them later on? He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Using the context of what he had just done to tell them, you know what, you'd like your stomachs to be filled, but what about your soul? And then in John chapter 8, the metaphor Jesus used as being the light presented in the backdrop of he at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the most celebrated feasts, the happiest feast. It's like our Thanksgiving, except it lasts a week long. Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booze, when people would gather in Jerusalem Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people would gather in this huge celebration that lasted a week where they would live in these booths or tents and memorial of the time when they were taken care of by God in the desert. After they had come out of Egypt, they lived in tents as nomadic people. And there... They followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And in that celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, there would be a particular ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And at night, what would happen was in the temple yards, there would be these candelabra, these huge lamps that they would light And there would be music and singing and those who were elders would have special dances and it was a celebratory time. But when they lit these lights, it lit up Jerusalem. Josephus, an ancient 
historian wrote, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. And these blazing lamps would remind the people of God that they followed God, that they followed God as he guided Israel through the wilderness all of those years by a pillar of fire at night. And secondly, it signifies Israel's recommitment to the God of light. And as these lights were lit and all of Jerusalem was filled with this blazing light, it was a backdrop in which Jesus declared in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Using the context of that, he declares the truth of who he was not only the bread of life and the light of life, but in John 15, you recall, John 15, he's walking after the Last Supper, and it is night. And to the end of chapter 14, he tells him at the Last Supper, get, a, get up, let us go from here, and the 11 of them, because Judas had left, the 11 of them had begun walking through the garden, to the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Kidron Valley, across to the Mount of Olives, and there they would have walked by, walked by the temple. And on the temple, there was the great golden vine, which was the national emblem of Israel on the front of it. The great golden vine. The idea of Israel being the vine. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his delightful plant. And en route, I believe, that Jesus would have told them what he told them in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. He is the source of light. And John sought to bring this convincing argument to his readers throughout this gospel of who Jesus was by what he proclaimed, validated by his works, the signs that Jesus gave. Jesus had a very public ministry for the first portion of his life in which he taught many things, did many signs, and told them many truths. But as opposition mounted, he had a very private ministry with his disciples. And after a public discourse in John chapter 12, verse 36, it says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. That is at the end of chapter 12. So for the first 12 chapters, a very public ministry in which he declares many things, signs that he did as well. And then in chapters 13 through 16, there we find him having a very private ministry with his disciples in the upper room. And these are the chapters of comfort and comfort and encouragement to the disciples because this is the Last Supper. In chapters 13 through 16, it is about 24 hours before he will die on the cross. The setting is on Thursday evening, and he calls, he calls his disciples together, and they are celebrating the Last Supper. He had just shared with them in chapter 12 about how he would not always be there with him, how he would die such as a grain of wheat that needs to fall to the ground, how he would be lifted up on the cross, and then only he would be with them for a little while longer, and then he was going 
where the disciples could not follow. And all of these things would have taken the disciples aback. Disappointment and discouragement would have settled in their hearts, and so he takes four chapters to encourage them. Why were they so discouraged by the news? Well, because they, for the last three years, had followed Jesus. They had given up so very much. When they were hungry, the Lord provided for them. When they needed taxes, the Lord provided that. When they were afraid, the Lord would still the seas. When they needed comfort and encouragement, He would give them the Word of God. All of their needs were met by Jesus. Their provisions were met by Jesus. They were following Him, their leader. They had dreams that Jesus was perhaps the Messiah who would overthrow Rome, who would set up a physical kingdom, and they would be people who were going to have authority, and so they were jockeying for positions within the new kingdom. Who was going to sit at the right and the left hand of God and bickering among themselves? Jesus tells them He's going to die. Jesus tells them that He won't be there anymore for a while. And so, despondent and discouraged, confused, in chapters 13 through 16, he comforts them. He tells them about the power that they would receive. He tells them about the resources they would get. He tells them that he will go, but he will send a comforter who will guide them into all truth. He tells them they will receive peace. He tells them in chapter 15 that they will bear much fruit. But he also tells them that they will suffer for his name's sake. But even in that, they will have joy. And he is preparing a home for them. All of these things a Savior would share with these discouraged disciples. He would show them his love for them by washing their feet. And then he would command them to love one another. And now we come to John chapter 17. When Jesus arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane, after comforting his disciples and encouraging them and reminding them of all that he would give them, even though he was going to be gone, we come to John chapter 17, where John records the prayer of Jesus, the prayer which has been called the high priestly prayer of Christ, because Jesus is the high priest praise on behalf of his followers. Or some have called it as well the Lord's Prayer. It is a magnificent prayer in the Scriptures because it is between the perfect and sinless Son of God and God the Father. It is the longest intra-Trinitarian prayer recorded in the Bible, penned in the Scriptures for us to read, it is a privilege to be able to read this particular prayer, and some consider this particular chapter in the Scriptures to be the most beautiful chapter in all of the Word of God. Because here we listen to the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He ushers us in, as it were, to the throne of grace as Hebrews would say, in the most holy place, holiness of reverence as he comes 
before the throne of God, and he prays and calls upon the Father in heaven. That is the attitude that we are to have, isn't it? That is the attitude that we are to have when we come before God, an attitude and prayer of reverence, of awe, of the seriousness that we come as a sinner. We can come boldly, but what a privilege it is to come to speak with God. And the prayer, as we look at it throughout the chapter 17, easily falls into three sections where he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all believers. This morning we have only enough time to look at the first five verses where he prays for himself, and there in that particular section we see that he asks to be glorified for three particular reasons. He prays that he would be glorified for the glory of God. He prays that he would be glorified that he, because he is the giver of eternal life, he prays that he would be glorified for his perfect life. And so we look here into this text at verse 1 of chapter 17. He prays that he would be glorified for the glory of God. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting his eyes to heaven. What are these things? He spoke the things compassed in chapters 13 through 16. These words of comfort. The context that is that is nighttime now. It is now evening. The sun has set long ago. They had completed the last supper. Judas has left in the middle of the supper. To gather the mob who will come to arrest Jesus. What is on the mind of the Lord Jesus at this time, it is the cross. It is the cross that is set before Christ. In a few hours, he will be beaten and scourged. A mob will come to get him. He will be tried. He wanted to tell his disciples the things that God has for him, and he did so in chapters 13 through 16 in in their encouragement. And he lifts his eyes to heaven in prayer, which is appropriate for one who is pure, comparison to the publican who comes in Luke chapter 18, who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the scriptures say in Luke 18 that he stood some distance away, this sinner, this publican, this tax collector, and even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. In contrast to that, Christ lifted his eyes to heaven as one who is pure, and he said, Father, Father. You know, in contrast to the common Jewish practice, the common Jewish practice of that day was to say, Our Father, And Jesus often addressed the Heavenly Father as Father or My Father. Because, you see, to the Jews, they had developed over the years a a remote view of God. That God was so transcendent, far away. They developed a view of God that one needed angels to carry those messages to God as they prayed. And that people had ceased to use the name of God for fear of taking His name. Vain, and so they viewed God as a far away God, but Jesus, Jesus, we call him 
father or my father. And then he said, the hour, the hour has come. The hour has come. What hour? The hour of his death. The hour of the cross. This was the moment in history. This was the moment in history that this child named Jesus Christ had been born to die and was coming to culmination at the cross, which was first and foremost in his mind's eye. And it had always been in view. One commentator writes, the unfolding drama of redemptive history had reached its apex. Plans made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. The hour had come in which the Son of Man would offer himself as the perfect and only atoning sacrifice for sin. The hour had come when the sinless one would be made sin for believers that they might become the righteousness of God in him. The hour had come when Christ would cancel the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. This was the hour when the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's death would be fulfilled, when the serpent's head would be bruised, when the suffering servant, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and have the chastening for our well-being. And upon him, by his scourging, we would be healed. It was the hour when the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices would give way to the glorious reality of the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God. It was the hour of Christ's triumph over the prince of this world and the kingdom of darkness. The hour had come, Jesus said. The hour had come, a climax in the history of the world. What did he pray? He prayed, glorify your son. Glorify your son. It was not a selfish prayer. Rather, it was a prayer in which Jesus was asking to be glorified. Why? We see in the text, it says, so that the son may glorify you. So that God might be glorified. And the question to us is, is that our desire as well when we pray? When we pray and we ask of things from God, is our desire that God might be glorified, that God's name might be made great? You recall in Psalm 67, if you turn your Bibles to Psalm 67, that is a sentiment of the writer of this psalm as well. Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. The writer of this psalm says in verse 1, of Psalm 67, God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. The psalmist prays and he says, God, be gracious, bless us. We say that a lot, don't we? We say that a lot. We pray and ask for God's blessing. God, bless me with good grades. God, bless me so I can be happy. God, heal me so I can be well. God, bless me. What's often the motive behind that? So I can be more comfortable? So I can have my way? So I can get a good job and make more money? Have more success? 
feel better about who I am? Is that why we pray? God is not a vending machine, and we are not at the center of the universe. The attitude of the psalmist here is that which is similar to that of Jesus. Verse 2 in Psalm 67, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Bless us, O God, so that others would know that you are our God. Bless us, O God, so that you and your name might be made great among all the nations, that people will look upon us and say, we are the people of God. Look at how they are blessed. This is a divine purpose behind why Christ prays even in John 17. Glorify me that I might glorify you. Bless so that you would be glorified. That is why we are to pray. Ultimately, that is why we are to pray. We are to pray so that God would be glorified, so we can give thanks to God and bring Him glory, so we can praise God when He answers, so that we can align ourselves with the will of God and God might be glorified, so when He heals you, you praise and glorify God. When He saves your business, when He gives you an answer to your prayer that God might get all the glory, even if it is not how you desire it would come about that God might be glorified. But the second reason Christ prays for his own glory is verse 2 and 3. Forgiving eternal life. Forgiving eternal life. Verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Not only does the text say that God the Father gave God the Son authority over all flesh, but God made a promise. God made a promise in eternity past. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul, explains that salvation is, quote, the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. Promised ages long ago. Let me read that again. Titus 1, 2. Salvation is the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. That little phrase at the end, long ages ago, literally means, quote, before time began. Do you realize time had a beginning? Time defined by a succession of moments didn't exist prior to anything that was created. Before there was nothing, there was no time. Because it is defined, if you define it as a succession of moments, but before time began in eternity past, he made a promise. He made a promise. Promised long ages ago, he made a promise to those whom? About whom, I should say. About those whom he had chosen. You see, in the mind of God, there was plan, the hope of eternal life. The question that comes is, to whom did he make that promise? And the answer is obvious. Before anything else was created, he made that promise necessarily within himself, within the Godhead Trinity. There was the promise that was made 
2 Timothy 1.9 furthermore states that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Same phrase as in the book of Titus, from all of eternity before time began. That is the literal translation of that. God had a plan. That plan in his mind's eye was to include the redemption of people, promised to save his own in eternity past according to his purposes, according to his grace, as the text tells us. It is a promise that he necessarily made to himself, within himself. More specifically, John 17 tells us more about that promise when we read the text. And we see in John 17 that the redemption, the plan of redemption, was in the mind of God, that God the Father is the giver. What did he give? He gave people, redeemed people, to his Son. We were saved as a love gift, as a fulfillment of that promise made in eternity past, given to whom? The second member of the Godhead Trinity, and that is Jesus Christ, that Jesus might give them eternal life, the text says. In verses 5 and 6, when you look down further, it says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. God was the giver who gave to the Son redeemed people that he might grant them eternal life. Furthermore, you look down when Jesus prays for all believers in verse 24 chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me Be with me where I am. God is the giver of people. And Christ prays for his glory that he might give eternal life. Eternity past, God had in his mind's eye the plan of redemption. And he had made a promise to give to his son that gift of a bride, as we read in the book of Revelation. That bride which is redeemed people redeeming the church, and Christ gave them eternal life. So as a Christian, you are a child of God, a special gift from God the Father to God the Son that Christ might give you eternal life. And eternal life, as Christ says here, is the privilege of knowing God. You see, we're not redeemed because we're something special. Redeemed by the purposes and the grace of God in a plan that he had in eternity past before time began. We are not the center of God's plan of salvation. Our salvation is not about us. It's about Christ and the glory of God. So Christ prays for his glorification because he is the giver of eternal life. Fulfillment of that promise which was made. 
Thirdly, Christ prays for his glory, for his his perfect life. Verse 4, I have glorified you, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Christ accomplished that perfect work. That perfect work that God had given to him, that he might be the perfect sacrifice without sin. Paul describes him in 2 Corinthians 5.21 as him who knew no sin. The writer of Hebrews declares that though he was tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. And he went on to characterize Christ as holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Hebrews 7.26. The Old Testament, it was required that you bring an unblemished lamb. And Christ is the fulfillment in all of perfection. As a sinless sacrifice, having accomplished the work of God, he looked forward to the cross. God had this all planned. And here he came to the cross. The cross displayed God's glory like no other event in history. The cross displayed and revealed his righteousness, revealed his justice, revealed the holiness, and it required the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter 1.19 would tell us, a lamb unblemished and spotless, and Christ was the fulfillment of that as the propitiation for his holy wrath against him, Romans 3.25 satisfaction of the wrath of God. And at the same time, the cross represents the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God in sending His one and only Son to die for your sins and mine, who are utterly undeserving, who are utterly undeserving by the predetermined plan and purposes of God before time was set in motion. God had accomplished in Christ, Thomas Schreiner writes, displays both the justice and love of God because God's holiness is vindicated in the cross while at the same time His love is displayed in the willing and glad sacrifice of His Son. So what does this all mean to us? It all means that aside from all that we are so tempted to worship that Christ Jesus deserves all of our worship and praise, the devotion of our lives. The reason why we live is to be for the glory of God, to be more like Christ because Christ deserves all things. The cheap substitutes that we so much pursue, we call them what? Distractions sometimes, but really we bow down to some of them. Christ deserves our worship and praise. Secondly, I don't know what sort of problems that you might face. I don't know what sort of challenges that you have. Loss of a loved one or maybe a loss of a job or disappointments in life. Struggles that you might have. But here was the Lord Jesus. Within hours away from being unjustly arrested, tried, beaten, and scourged. Far beyond that, to bear the sins of the world, to be separated from a period of time from fellowship with God, 
to die on the cross for our sins, and yet he prays for God's glory, that God might be honored, that God might be seen. Can you see that through your difficulties? Can you see that through your problems, which are often temporal? Temporal. Through our sicknesses, through our trials, through our problems in life, can you see the cross, the glory that God wants to receive, even in difficulties? No matter what we face, the cross is ever before us. And so our prayers ought to be, God, help me, that you might be glorified and honored through whatever it might be. For Christ is deserving of our worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come during this time of communion, Father, may we ever remember the cross, the suffering and the shame as your son died for us. But to him it was a symbol, O God, of the victory, of the glory that he would receive, that he might bring glory to you. Impress that upon our hearts, O Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.